So I was copied on an email this week that um, was in, you know, an exchange between a couple of co-workers, and one was saying to the other one, they said, I blew it. And the one who was writing the email was basically saying, um, you know, they were apologizing, I'm sorry for any inconvenience that was created by the fact uh, that I didn't do this or didn't do that or whatever, this, and, I, and I blew it. And I looked at that and it reminded me of all the times that I've blown it. Has anybody in the house here ever blown it? And the rest of you? Some of you should be lifting both hands and both feet. Come on. Haven't we all blown it at one time or another? You know, have you ever blown it to the point that you've just totally lost it? Just I've absolutely lost I have done that so many times. You, you blow it, and then, you know what? The, the, then you can even possibly lose your temper. Have you ever heard of that before? How many of you, come on, be honest, and you're going to be more honest than you were on the last question. How many of you, before you were saved, ever lost your temper? Before you were saved? How many of you, since you have been saved, have ever lost your temper? We have more hands after you've been saved than before you're saved. So what's with that? You get saved and you get angry? What happens? I'm talking about losing it this morning. I mean, why you get, you know, you can get red-faced and things come out of your mouth that you really wish you had not said, just really, really losing it. There's a well-known pastor from the West Coast. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's a, he's a wonderful man. Pastor's um, a church in the San Diego area, uh, Shadow Mountain Community Church, Dr. David Jeremiah. He has written a book called Slaying the Giants in Your Life. And in this book, he lists all the different kinds of rage that we have today. Now, I knew we had a growing list, but I didn't know it, it was like this. We now today, in 2014, we have road rage, parking rage, air rage, boat rage, fishing rage, never heard of that one, pedestrian rage, jogger rage, biker rage, cell phone rage, trucker rage, grocery cart rage, <laughs> checkout line rage. How many of you are watching to see if the person in front of you only has 10 items in their cart? Come on. However, there's a new one that's on the list that was a bit of a surprise to me, and it's called, you ready for this, Pew Rage. Now, we have never experienced that here at Bethesda, or at any point in our ministry. I could not have cued that any better. <laughs> That's fabulous. Oh, yeah. Keep that child in here. I'm going to need him again in just a minute. I'll give you the cue. Okay. I was, um, I was at the car wash the other day, and I overheard a dad saying to his kids, who obviously appeared to be dancing on his last nerve. How many know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> And he was really, he was just about over the brink. And I heard him look at them and say, 
The bag is getting full. The bag is getting full, which seemed to mean that you are getting very close to having him enraged at that point. And I don't know how it is with you, I know how it is with me, that you never really know when the bag is getting full. You just had that sense when it is getting full. And it happens to all of us, doesn't it? It happens to, it happens to all of us, doesn't it? Thank you. What a sanctimonious crowd we have here this morning. I think I'll wait and preach this somewhere else because this group's got this all covered. Have you ever gotten so full that you just couldn't take it anymore? Words come flying out. Things are said, whether it's sarcastic or or whatever. And, and, And there are even times when people are tempted to revert to their old B.C. days. You know what B.C. means? Before Christ. Many people refer back to that. In fact, I had a brother this very week call me and said, Pastor, I just got to tell you, I got to confess this to you. I was so ticked off at what happened. For just a few, I stepped out of the kingdom for just a couple of minutes, he said. I stepped right back in. It was just a couple of minutes, but I had to step out of the kingdom for a while. And words come out that, you know, that I wasn't planning on. And, and you know, it, it, that happens to all of us. And if you're like me, sometimes things come out when the bag is getting full. And you go, where did that come from? How, wh- wh- how did that come out of my mouth? Those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans have probably all read his book, Mere Christianity. In it, Lewis says this. He says, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence of what kind of man he really is. What he's saying is this. He says, surely what pops out in front of a man before he has had time to put on a disguise is the truth of what he really actually is. And then he says this. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in suddenly But the suddenness doesn't create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation against you does not make you ill-tempered. It only shows that you were already an ill-tempered man. Ouch. Those rats, just like the bad temper, were always there. The light in the basement didn't make the rats, it exposed them, and that's really what happens. When you lose it, your temper rises up, and it wasn't because really of something that happened on the outside, it was just something that was, got exposed, and it exposed what was already on the inside, something that was already resident within us. Now, this is the kind of thing that we might think new believers would be struggling with. But it hits not only new believers, new converts, and it does, but how many know it can also hit mature Christians? Now, you've got to get more honest than this, folks, this morning. It can happen to mature Christians because the bag gets full on all of us. Well, what, what about um, not only new converts can struggle with this and not only mature Christians, but what about those people that we might, if we could create a category called super Christians, Do you think that this problem exists with, can it happen to those people who really know Jesus, that you you really think that they're really spiritual? Let me tell you what, it can happen to all of us, to any one of us. 
And the church said, the bag gets full and we, and we just lose it. Even the people that we think are really, really the special in God's sight. I've been on staff at Bethesda Church for 36 years. 33 of those years, I was the minister of music and I worked with Desmond Evans, speaking of super Christians. It's just a handful of times that I saw Des... But let me take you back to 1980. <laughs> Stephen would have been 10 years old, 9 or 10 roughly. And let me just say this about Stephen. How many of you would have been here in 1980? Let me see your hand, a few of you. Stephen was an animated child. <clears throat> Spirited, you might say. It was during that season when we began to hear the term a lot, um, hyperactive. And that would have defined Stephen. Now, <clears throat> understand that during that season of his life, Stephen was in, we had a children's choir at that time that met every Wednesday night. And Stephen was in the children's choir, and I have to tell you that even thinking about this week, just thinking about Stephen in a children's choir brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> now, the young lady, she was a young married lady who was the director of the choir at that time, she did not have children. And so she was not accustomed to dealing with spirited young men as Stephen was. And I began, she began coming to me and saying that, you know, there were a few issues. There were some things that, you know, she wished we could deal with and she was concerned about this. And there, occasionally, Stephen had the ability when he was in the children's choir to cause a, just a slight bit of disruption. Um, he could bring just a certain kind of uh, attention. The truth is, all hell broke loose when he was there. <laughs> I was trying to be nice about Stephen, but they weren't buying it. She starts coming to me saying, what are we going to do? And I said, you understand this is the pastor's son, right? This is my boss's. Are you crazy? You think I'm going to go talk to his parents? Really? That's what you think? She said, you've got to do something about this. I said, I, I don't know what you think I'm going to do. Well, then the night came when the bag was full. And she came in to me after, and she was totally exasperated. Apparently, that week, sometime in those, that period of time, Stephen had learned how to tie a square knot, okay? Sitting in front of him in the uh, children's choir was a young lady with long pigtails. <laughs> So it made perfect, perfectly good sense to Stephen to practice his square knot tying with the young lady's pigtail. Well, it caused a bit of disruption. Let me just say it was a bit of a problem. And so this choir director came to me and she said, you have got to do something. And so now, I, okay, I've got to do something. Well, I was terrified about it. So she leaves and Des and Mary finish the, um, they finish the service and they're walking down the hall by my office. And then with a trembling voice, I said, um, could you guys come in here just for a second? Now understand, Minister of Music now has the senior pastor and his wife sitting in the chairs in front of me, and I've got to talk about this. So I began to gently tell them kind of what was going on and, and trying to find, you know, a way to say, you know, if we could maybe just encourage him at home or whatever I could, you know, whatever I could say. <laughs> and <clears throat> I was trying to be gentle about it, but Des 
<clears throat> sitting there in the chair, and on the arm rest of the chair, his fingers are going like this. And the more I talk, steam starts coming out of his nose, <laughs> his ears. His face turns bright red. This is not going well. I'm not the way I was planning on it going. And suddenly he bolts out of that chair, and all I can hear is Mary saying, Now, Des, now, Des, calm down, Des, please. Now, Desmond, Desmond, calm down, calm down. And the next thing I hear is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because, folks, the bag was full. <clears throat> yes, amen. It can happen to all of us, folks. It can happen to new converts. It can happen to mature believers. It can happen to pastors. It can happen to, happen to what some of us might want to call super Christians, the very spiritual people. But what about apostles? Go to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. There is a message for us here, all of us this morning. And I hope you are as encouraged by it as I am. Acts chapter 23, the first verse looks like this. Now, there's been a lot of stuff building up to this. But it says this, Acts 23, verse 1. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. Something about the tone of that mixed with what had taken place up to this point caused that statement to not be received well. Because look at verse 2. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. Now hang on here with me. Please understand that what Paul is about to say in the next verse should not be read with your spiritual voice. How often we try to find a passage of Scripture and we have this tone that we go into when we read it. And God said. <laughs> and here's how we read the Bible. And it has this tone that is so far-fetched from reality of life. But I want you to look at this next verse. And I'm going to tell you about how I think it came out of Paul's mouth. Now, he's stood there. He said, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. Ananias, the high priest, tells somebody, slap him. And they do. They smack him on the face. But Paul said to him, God will slap you. Folks, this is Paul, the apostle Paul, the same Paul that we've memorized his stuff, Paul the most powerful and influential follower of Christ we've ever had, that Paul. And then, not only does he say, God will slap you, he reverts to name calling. He says, you corrupt hypocrite. Now, other versions of that, I looked at several, other versions say, you whitewashed wall. 
which really means you big phony. There you stand with your fancy clothes and your, all of your garb and all that you have. And you, you look good on the outside. You're whitewashed on the outside. You look good like that. But underneath that, you're a big phony. And, and, and what's underneath all of that, even though you look good on the outside, you stink. And everyone around knew what that meant when he called him a whitewashed wall. You whitewashed wall. You stink. That's the way that it came out. And everyone knew what that insult meant. They knew exactly what it meant. Profanity of the day, if you will. And there is Paul losing it because the bag was full. And he says, what kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? Then, watch this, watch this. In verse 4, those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare to insult God's high priest? And all of a sudden, Paul catches himself. How many have ever caught yourself? He catches himself. And it probably came out something like this. Oh, I'm sorry, brothers. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, re- oh my, I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. And then he starts quoting the Bible. For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Here is super Christian, super apostle Paul with no last name, Paul, that Paul that we know, losing it completely. Now, it may not have been quite as bad as I just read it out, but it was bad. Paul gets slapped in the face for saying that his conscience is clear. The trigger switch happens when Paul gets struck in the face and he loses it. And basically, what's happening in this moment, I want you to get the picture in your mind. He's staring down the high priest and saying, you stink. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're like me, you read this passage and you go, look, if that's how the apostle Paul deals with stuff then no wonder I have some of the reactions that I do. But let's be fair. Because if you read backwards a little bit about the kind of week Paul had experienced, it's easier, it's easier to start having a little bit more mercy upon him. Because haven't we all been in situations where we see the big reaction that someone has that, that could easily, just based upon the circumstances of that moment, their reaction could look very much over the top and inappropriate and wrong for that moment. And we might even stand back and say, wow, where did that come from? And then we come to understand that possibly it's not the circumstance of, of that moment which triggered the big response, but more than likely there have been multiple circumstances, layer upon layer, that have built up to that moment, and you just happen to be there for the trigger moment. For years, our daughter played soccer, and one thing soccer parents always know is the ref always sees the reaction, not the action. They always get judged for the reaction, not the action. And that's what happens here. We don't realize all the actions that have taken place that have brought someone to that moment where the bag is full and the reaction takes place. Let's look and see what Paul's week was like. Come on, let's be fair to him. Paul, just before entering into the situation of chapter 23, he had been beaten by a mob in chapter 21. He is bound in chains in that same chapter 21. He had his death demanded by a group of zealous Jews in chapter 22. Also in chapter 2, he comes within a breath of being scourged. So on top of all of these things that have happened, he's wondering why he's being accused by the Jews. And there he stands with little sleep 
and little food and little physical care. He's weary and he's bruised before the high Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And we must also remember that this is the court of which Paul has been a member before he even became a Christian. Now he's standing before those that he knows and he's being struck and we can all identify with his exhaustion and pain and very weakened condition as he stands before these antagonistic men. And Paul makes this statement. He gets slapped in the face for it, and that did it. He just lost it. The same Apostle Paul who wrote Romans 8, all things work together for good, reaches this moment, and he loses it. You stink. He loses it completely. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. You stink. He came to that moment. Paul, who gave us all these amazing letters, reaches his breaking point. Sometimes it's easy to compartmentalize it and even try to say that all of his great words mean nothing because he also reached that moment where he said, you stink, and stink, and he calls Ananias a corrupt hypocrite. And he's not just saying this to the high priest. He's saying it in front of the Sanhedrin, some 70 men. And here's what I want you to hear that he knew. These are the men that Paul used to be part of. He served with these men. These are the Sanhedrin that before Paul gets saved, before he has the Acts 9 encounter with Jesus, these are the people that Paul knew. Not only the high priest, but all the other guys there as well. They were his friends. And now he is not dressed in the garb of the Sanhedrin. He's standing being tried by the very man that he used to do life with. For whatever reason, the damage was done. And in a heated moment, Paul said the wrong thing to the wrong person. He lost the opportunity to receive a fair trial. And most importantly, I wonder if he's thinking, I have blown it. I've blown it. I've blown the opportunity to share the gospel with my friends. Has anyone in this room ever felt that way before? Your behavior has been such for whatever reason, and you've blown it at a strategic moment. You had a chance to share the gospel, but something that you did or something that you said, it just caused you to reach a place where you blew it. Imagine Paul sitting now back in his cell, Whipping himself in this moment, thinking, I had a once-in-a-lifetime chance to preach the gospel to these guys, and I blew it. How stupid of me to lose my temper. I'm an apostle. Have you ever felt like your tongue cost you an opportunity? I'm a pastor, and I know what it is to blow it. Blow it bad. Just a few weeks ago, July 3rd, Becky and I were on that day. It was the day before most people, most communities celebrate the Independence Day. However, in the city of Southlake, they do their firework uh, display on the 3rd, and so they're barricading off the street and the parking lots and all of that. It was very hard to get around. Had I remembered that, I wouldn't have gone there. We were simply trying to get out and get a quick bite of lunch at a favorite cafe. She and I were in the car. You couldn't move anywhere. Traffic was ridiculous. How many of you like me? As long as I can just keep moving. Just anything. Just keep moving. But stuck. Stuck cars behind you, cars in front of you. We pulled in this parking lot area of this little cafe. 
and it is so crowded. Again, they've barricaded part of it off. There's not one parking place in sight. And, and cars everywhere are scrambling for maybe if one, you, know, you start following someone who's walking to their car, hoping that they're, you know, they're going to leave and you get their spot. And so it was one of those days. It was hot. It was exhausting. Finally, with cars behind me and cars in front of me, I spot there is one parking place. It is a small parking place. And, of course, beating me to it is a lady in a Yukon. trying to put that vehicle in a parking place that would barely hold a motorcycle. That may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it looked like that. She stopped the rest of us, and we were all stuck. You couldn't go this way, you couldn't go this way. She stopped the rest of us for what seemed like 20 or 30 minutes as she piece by piece shimmied that big, huge vehicle into this tiny little and we all had to wait because she had to back up two inches and do that. Back up two inches. It was ridiculous. We can't get anywhere. We're all stuck. Horns are honking. She's determined she's going to take that parking place. And so as she finally gets, I mean, I'm thinking, once you get in there, how do you think you're going to you're gonna climb out through the roof? There's no way you can open your door. I mean, I can't imagine how she thinks she's going to get out of the car. And so anyway... She finally gets it in there, and, and just about the time our car was able to pass by hers, I looked at her, and I gave, you, I gave her a God bless you look. <laughs> that she apparently interpreted as displeasure from me from, for what she had done. <clears throat> so, anyway, we go on. And I'm finally, we get up to where it's close to the door, and I finally said to Becky, I said, Becky, just let me get out. I was driving. Let me get out. You come around and take the car and just drive around. There's no way we're going to get a parking place. I'll go in and get sandwiches or whatever, and I'll, I'll bring it out. Okay, we pull up close to the door. I get, get out of the car. Becky gets in. She starts to take off. Well, what I don't realize is with the timing of it all, just about the time I get out of the car is where Precious Lady is coming out of her car, and we meet up face to face. Right here, just outside the door of the cafe. She lit into me like there was no tomorrow. And I responded with a couple of other God bless yous in the process. And we are going after it. It's ridiculous. We were going after it because both of us, the bag was full. I'm not calling her a bag. I'm saying the bag was full. <laughs> Give me a break here. You thought it, I didn't. Come on. <laughs> so we're walking. All of a sudden, I, you know, at least I kept my wits about me enough to be a gentleman enough to hold the door open and let her go in first. But she goes in, she goes in backwards so she can still talk at me all the way in. <laughs> She's talking, and we walk in. This, this cafe is so crowded. It's jam-packed full of people. We, I don't get three feet in the door. The door barely closes, and I hear, Pastor Dan! There has not been a day in the last three years that I least wanted to be recognized <laughs> as in that situation. So here me and this lady or whatever, and what I didn't realize is one of our fine young ladies born and raised in this church who may be here this morning, I don't know, was a new employee at this cafe. I had no idea she's working there. And she was just thrilled to see her pastor come to her cafe that day. And so 
you know, I looked at her and I said, well, we'll see you at church on Sunday. Praise the Lord. I blew it. Has anybody in the house ever blown it? Few of you are getting a little more honest. Some of you aren't going to raise your hand no matter how long I, how many times I ask it. So Paul's situation, no gospel is shared with this high court. Nobody's saved. Paul makes an absolute fool of himself before his peers. And now the only thing he has to show for it is a red mark across his face. And he's sitting back in jail and left with only himself and his self-condemning thoughts. I can imagine Paul thinking to himself, he doesn't stink. I stink. Forget him. I'm the one who blew it. God has to be mad at me. Surely he is ticked at me. In fact, God should hit me. Surely God put me here to touch and have impact on the Jewish elite for the gospel, and all I do is stand there and cuss them out. Imagine his prayer that night. Imagine what he thought God was saying to him. You can almost hear him conjuring up what he thought God's thoughts were. Here I put you in this situation. I was counting on you, and you blow it. Surely God is in heaven telling the angels what a loser Paul is for what he's done. And that night, in a prison cell, though angels are notorious for showing up in prison cells, that night, no angel. I can hear Paul almost saying, I don't even expect an angel to show up. A demon, yes. An angel, no. Missed the opportunity, missed the moment, and there he sits. The church, I say nothing else this morning that you hear, hear this. Our God is a God of mercy. Which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. How many of you are glad, at least glad that God hasn't given you what you deserve? And whatever you think God is thinking about you, let me tell you, you're probably wrong. He doesn't think like that because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Paul may be thinking, I deserve to sit in my condemnation tonight. And then church, stay with me here for the next few minutes. I'm going to hurry as fast as I can. One verse made all the difference. One verse, and that's what I want to take you to. One verse here reminds us that we have a God of wonders, we have a God of mercy, and we have a God that is so much greater than we are. I want you to look with me at verse 11, chapter 23, verse 11. No angel, but who shows up? Verse 11 says, that night the Lord appeared to Paul. Are you hearing me? That night... I'm trying to paint a picture for you really clearly of what the circumstances have taken place that week, that day, and now the condition that he's in. What he must be thinking of himself. That position we've all been in when we've blown it so badly, and I'm the least of these. That night, not an angel, not some other messenger, the Lord appeared to Paul. I'm looking at that and saying, no, 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 no. That's not what you're supposed to do. God, you're supposed to be angry. Because that's what we would have done. 
But God is not like us. He's rich in mercy. He's so much more gracious than we are. He is long-suffering. And the Bible says in that verse 11, that night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, why'd you call him names? Can't believe you. What are you thinking? Is that what he says? That night, the Lord appeared to Paul, and he says this. Somebody get this this morning. Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. And church, he doesn't even mention the failure. You know why? I think you've heard this before, because failure is not final in God. Come on, give the Lord a clap of praise today. In fact, notice what happens here in this verse. We're not even going to talk about whitewashed wall. We're not going to talk about your language, what you said. Because, buddy, not only are we not going to talk about that, but I'm here to encourage you, and I'm here to say that not only are you not a failure, I'm here to talk about your future, because your future is bright. Hallelujah. Oh, bless the Lord. And he's saying to him, come on. You may be sitting here in this jail cell feeling like you've blown it. You've disappointed God. You've done everything the wrong way. The rats in the cellar got exposed because the suddenness of what happened. The bag was full. You got ignited. You acted in a way according to your own, the frailty of your own humanity. But guess what? We're not even going to mention that. Get up. We got places to go. We got people to see. I've got stuff for you to do. You've got a future. It's a bright future because it's the one I've designed for you. Blessed be the Lord. And on that night, God stands by his side and he encourages him to go on. Right on the very day that he blew it. Folks, that is one incredible God. Listen to me, and here's what somebody needs to hear this morning. He stands closest to you when you blow it. He stands closest to you when you've been at your worst. And our thinking is all backwards. We think it's the opposite. We think we blow it, and God says, I'm out. I can't associate with you. Listen to me. God associates with the man who's calling the high priest names. He showed up that night. You know why? Because Paul needed him the most that night. He needs him the most when he feels like he's blown it, when he's messed up, when he's lost it. None of us ever have plans to lose it when we get up in the morning. We don't, that's not our goal that we set out, but it can happen. And here's what I know, that though my actions can be so unpredictable, I'm so thankful for a God that when I'm unpredictable, I'm thankful for a God who is predictable. Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Bless the Lord. And this is why, because God cannot deny himself. And God is basically saying this to us this morning. You being at your worst can't change who I am. Just because you're at your worst, that cannot change who I am or cause me to stoop to the, to the way that you're acting. When, Paul, when the high priest gets crazy, Paul gets crazy. But God's not like either of them. When we have been at our worst, can I tell you that's when God has been the closest. I'm going to close with this. Stay with me just a minute. I want you to hear this. If I say the name David Wilkerson, I know many of you will know who I'm talking about. For many folks in this room, he had profound impact on your lives, whether you knew him through 
the starting of Teen Challenge, or the book The Cross and the Switchblade, or possibly you were more directly involved with him in his ministry. I've had many friends over the years who were directly involved in his ministry. Many of us were impacted by his life and ministry. I've been reminded recently of something David Wilkerson said many years ago. He was talking about the power of God and the incredible character and mercy of God. And he was talking about the story of the first night of Passover, the final plague that was going to hit all of, the, all of Egypt and the death angel was going to come. Many of you, most of you know the story. And God says, I'm going to give you an opportunity as the Jewish people to be free from all of this. And what did he tell them to do? He told them to take a, a lamb and slaughter the lamb and take the blood and put it where? Over the doorpost. And that blood will be a sign for you. It's going to be the, the first Passover. For when the death angel comes and if he doesn't see the blood on the doorpost, he's going to go in and take the firstborn. But when the death angel comes and if he does see the blood, he will pass over that house and no harm will come to any of them. There will be life there. And Brother David Wilkerson presented it this way. He said, I want to give you a picture of two homes. Here's the two homes that night. First house. There's faith in the house. The father looks at the children who that night are hearing the screams of the Egyptian homes around them as the death angel is going through. The children are saying to their, to their dad, Father, are we safe? And the father confidently says, we are safe. We've got the blood upon the door. We've taken the blood of the lamb and we've put the blood on the doorpost. Children, you don't have anything to worry about tonight, so eat with rejoicing in your heart because though others around you don't have the blood on the doorpost, we do because that's what God told us. And if God told us to do that, then we are safe. But then there's another house another Jewish home right next to them. And the children in that home hear the same screams. And the children say to their dad, Father, are we safe? And in that house is a dad who says, I'm not really sure. He says, I've put the blood on the door. But we've never seen anything like this quite like this before, with all the screaming and all of the activity. We've not seen this before. So children, just pray. Because I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I don't know if this is really going to work. The plan we were given, I don't know if it's really going to work, so I've not seen this before. So, let's, so just pray, because I'm not sure. And so the question that Brother Day presented was this. Which house was more secure? The house where there was confidence and faith or the house where there was fear and no faith? Which house was more safe? And the answer is this. They both were. Because, hear this, hear this, hear this. It had nothing to do with them in the house, but it had everything to do with the blood that had been applied on the door. Hallelujah! 
Whether today you are full of faith and standing strong or feeling weak and lacking in confidence so for whatever reason, God is standing by and he's closer than you think. Come on, let's stand and give God praise. We thought it's all about us. It's not all about us. It's all about him. He's the one who's the faithful one. Come on, let's just lift our hands and say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. Come on, open your mouth, lift your hands and say that. It's not about me, it's about you. Come on, do it right now. Blessed be your name, Jesus. We thought it's been all about us, but it's all about you. We give ourselves so much credit, but it's really about you, Jesus. It was the blood that kept those homes. It was the touch of God that kept Paul And we tend to think it's our successes that bring Jesus closer. And when we lose it or fail, that he is far from us. And when we say that, do we realize how that has the tendency to dismantle the grace of God? It's starting to dismantle it. Because whether Paul was speaking to the men of Athens or preaching when men are throwing stones or when he's preaching the gospel to a jailer, the Lord was by his side. And also on that day when he lost it and he was in a prison cell and facing the reality of his failure, the reality, the reality of his own humanity, by losing his temper in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the high priest, and saying, you stink. Guess what? God was just as close. And he said, get up. We've got work to do. Possibly God was saying to him, we've got work to do on you too. We've got to work with that temper. But I'm still here. Just because you have done that doesn't mean you've chased me off and gone the other way. He's not just here when you succeed. He's also there when you fail. I want the chance to pray for you today because I think some of you have, for some of you could be said, you know, Pastor Dan, the bag is getting full. It really is getting full. There's stuff that's happening and I feel like the rats in the cellar are getting revealed. And I understand that they were there all along, but now the light is shining on them. You know what, Pastor? I not only want God to stand with me, but I want him to give me the grace to see those things taken care of. It's not just so that you can walk out of here saying, God, every time I get angry, you'll be there. No, 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 no. That's not what it's about. If that's all you've heard today, you've heard the wrong message. Because the Bible tells us this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to what? forgive us of our sin and to what and to cleanse us he's saying not only do I want to forgive you but I want to cleanse you of the very thing for which you've received my forgiveness I think the Lord was saying to Paul not just that every time he got angry God would be there but he's saying I'm there but let's also deal with this thing because I'm there to deal with you I'm there to stand by your side We have somehow conjured up this image in our mind that if we're a bad boy or we're a bad girl, God runs away. If that's you today, and you are saying the bag is full, and I have been absolutely convinced that God is so disappointed with me that he has run away, and you want me to pray for you, just get out from where you are and come and stand on here for three minutes, two minutes, and let me pray. Who is it this morning? Come on, who is it? Just step out from where you are. Who is it this morning?